Just a quick note before we start today. We recorded this episode with David on May 3rd, which is about a week before the recent finality incidents on Ethereum's beacon chain. I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today, I'm speaking with David Hoffman, co-host and co-founder of Bankless, a crypto media organization. David is also a general partner at Bankless Ventures, an early stage Web3 venture fund. If you're in crypto and you listen to podcasts, you know Bankless. If you're in crypto and you don't listen to podcasts, you probably still know Bankless, and let's call it its ethos in the space. Unlike most non-journalist-run crypto podcasts, Bankless has maintained a mostly positive reputation over the last few years, and amassed a considerable amount of influence in the industry at large, especially when it comes to the narrative development and overall direction of the Ethereum ecosystem. In the first segment of our conversation, we discuss Bankless's business model, disclosure policies, and responsibility to the space given its reach. After these pleasantries, we get into the meat of this discussion, an honest, civil, and multifaceted conversation on Solana versus Ethereum's decisions, community, and future. This is a conversation between two people who have fundamentally different philosophies on the best way to build a blockchain. Before joining the Solana ecosystem in early 2021, I worked on ETH2 staking infrastructure at Bison Trails, leading up to the launch of the Beacon Chain in 2020. And what attracted me to Solana was its radically different approach to building a blockchain. One I thought, and still think, is better suited to mass adoption. That being said, I'd like to think I approach this conversation not as a Solana maxi, but as someone who's been for years looking at the Ethereum roadmap and has a handful of critiques and questions. If this is the stuff that interests you most, just skip ahead to around 25 minutes in. One of the most fascinating parts of this conversation is that it serves as a glimpse into the psychological identity of a diehard Ethereum believer. David is not someone who closed his eyes and pulled Ethereum out of a hat and said, this is the blockchain for me. According to David, Ethereum's place today is hard earned and it's something that he and other Ethereans have fought for since late 2010s. They carry the scars of a long war with the Bitcoiners, which on one hand, David admits has fueled tribalism, but on the other hand, opens him up to new views and new ideas. In hindsight, he doesn't want to look like the anti-ETH Bitcoiners of 2017 and 18 do today. This is the longest episode we've ever done, and the first one we're publishing a YouTube version of as well. So grab some popcorn or a beer and enjoy the show. David Hoffman, welcome to Validated. Cheers. Thanks for bringing me here. Different side of the microphone this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually like being on the other side of the microphone. I don't get the opportunity too often. Yeah. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been excited to have you on for a little while. So I want to sort of start out talking about both your journey into Bankless, which I know you guys have covered a few times before, but specifically here on, on the role that like grassroots media organizations have played in crypto. I think... When you guys started, there were very few, let's call them professional reporters or professional analysts covering the space. Since then, that space has gotten more crowded, but there's still been this like very important role that Bankless has has sort of filled in the space. So I kind of want to just start out talking about like what was that process like, both deciding, hey, we're going to start a show here, and then sort of how that's changed as more folks have entered the space. 
Yeah, sure. So um, Bankless was actually my second podcast in the crypto industry. Yeah. Uh, my first podcast was called POV Crypto, which was hosted by me. It was indeed um, a sex joke. Uh, I was less professional in my early years in the crypto world, but it was also it also was point of view crypto, right? And uh, me and my college friend, uh, who was a staunch Bitcoiner, just disagreed all the time. And when we were getting into crypto, it was me and him in our friend's chat group, and there was maybe 10 or 12 people. We were all on the crypto journey, but it was really me and him that were kind of leading the charge. And he just felt really compelled by Bitcoin, and I just felt really compelled by Ethereum. And we would like fight and debate inside of this chat room that we had, and eventually we turned that into a podcast. And that was our that started off like I think our first episode got like ten views or something. But just through the process of consistency and also authentic debate from two perspectives, that like if you get the average Bitcoiner and average Ethereum like into a room together, especially back then. Like it's nails on a chalkboard, but because it was me and my college friend, we were actually able to like yell at each other and debate in like semi-aggressive ways, but also with love at the same time, right? And so like that's what actually made it like an enjoyable process, even though like legitimately we were yelling at times, it was still fun to listen to, not just like pain to the ears. And so we did like 150 episodes of that and it was like a bear market it was like the biggest bear market podcast between 2018 and 2020 because like not only was it a quote unquote like coming of age story for both me and my co-host because like our first episodes were under a year into the industry and so he was trying to teach me his perspective about bitcoin i was trying to teach him my perspectives about ethereum and he would bring on a bitcoiner guest and then i would later later would bring on an ethereum guest and so it was a melting pot of conversations and that's really where I learned like what I'm good at in this industry, uh, which is not like what I thought it was going to be, which was like coding. I thought I was going to have to learn how to code. But then it was turned out it was um, content production. And that was kind of like my first foot in the door that ultimately came to lead into Bankless. Yeah, it's, it's funny you talk about it that way, because one of the things that I think Bankless has historically done a nice job of is that sort of like, let's disagree about stuff, but in a way that doesn't feel either overly academic, which a lot of like the Twitter threads can feel or the conference conversations can feel and doesn't feel overly antagonistic, which is also a thing that happens on on Twitter a lot. But that's a really fine point to navigate. And I think if you look at like the post bull market world of crypto influencers and crypto media outside of folks like Coindesk and The Block, because those are sort of a, a separate beast here, but like the BitBoys of the world, right? The, the YouTubers of the world, the majority of them are pretty disgraced at this point, either from peddling, let's just call them what they are, peddling shit coins, or these sort of like overly rosy analysis of what a specific asset might do. You guys are kind of one of the few left standing that has, for the most part, navigated that well. At the same time, you do take sponsorship money. You do host ad reads. How do you kind of navigate that sort of ethical relationship, not necessarily with like the world at large, but with the actual viewers of the show? Yeah, when we started Bankless, it was under a paradigm where like the typical crypto content producer, influencer type they made money and they made upside by like dumping on their followers, dumping on their listeners, right? Uh, that was like the status quo business model. So when like the Bankless media platform came out in the podcast and we had sponsorship, 
it's like there's we get flack for our sponsors today but i'm like guys <laughs> remember what that means <laughs> remember yeah. like the sustainable business model that in, this implies right and so the the philosophy on like the bankless business model i didn't really fully like answer your original question which was like the role of grassroots media organizations bankless we strictly call ourselves like not journalists like that j word we definitely throw flags like not not a journalist um i call ourselves optimistic storytellers of frontier technologies a thesis driven media company if you will where we have versions of the future that we would like to see arrive and then we tell the show, like give our theses for why we think that that future is the most likely future and also a good future and so with the bankless is a, a dual business model media company so uh, subscribers uh, pay subscribers who pay for perks and extra content and just access and then also subscription revenue and the idea is like these are polar opposing forces right the idea is that like we want the ability and we retain the ability to fire a sponsor at any moment in time if we feel like they are misaligned or trying to attempt to have undue influence right so like freedom from sponsor capture and then also in order to make sure that we have that freedom from sponsor capture we need to make sure that we are providing sufficient value to paid subscribers so we need to make sure that we are not too dominant on one side of the business because if we start to be like 90% sponsor revenue and only 10% subscriptions from uh, listeners that means the axis of power has tilted too far in sponsorship's favor and we need to increase the value of our product to our paid members and also it means we're like we're misaligned as in like people aren't paying for the product on an individual right. level only sponsors are paying for the product and so having this as close to 50/50 as possible is way we kind of find ourselves walking like the line between the yin and the yang which is always where you want to be. Yeah, so this is a little inside baseball, but basically for those of you who aren't familiar with the business side of the podcast space, the amount you can charge advertisers per listener in crypto is very high relative to most other podcast categories. It's the number one industry for podcast advertising. And so what's interesting here is balancing those two things between sponsorship revenue mm -hmm. and membership revenue, the membership model, most media organizations have found it actually doesn't work for them because mm -hmm. the amount of money they can generate from memberships is so much lower comparatively to sponsorships. Like people don't realize this, but like YouTube premium actually is a money loser for YouTube because mm -hmm. even when you're paying 12 or 15 bucks a month, that's nowhere near the amount they would make from ad revenue on you. You know, the, the same thing works for like, oh, why doesn't my favorite website have a model where I can just pay them five bucks a month as opposed to showing ads on the websites? Like, well, they actually make more money from showing you the ads than they would from your membership fee. So how do you guys kind of balance that? Do you just deprioritize revenue to maintain a ratio or how does that kind of work out? Yeah, so the idea is that the revenue that comes from the sponsorships, we can fuel our team growth to increase the value of the product from the paid subscriber base. So... Um, not too long ago, launched our website for the first time ever after being a company for like three years. But a very spiffy, uh, high production website, right? We're all super proud of it. And then since launching that website, we've been able to roll out, um, I think, like three products now ever ever since. Like, So now, now we actually have like a hub, right? And so we have literally the token hub. Uh, so that's like token ratings by the analyst team on the newsletter. So bullish or bearish or underweight. And then there's also like me, Ryan, and two analysts on the Bankless team uh, do the, the Bankless bankless bags. It's like our personal investment club. We all put money in and then we elect to buy or sell certain tokens. And so like if you want to see 
the bankless bags got to be a premium subscriber and then so like it's putting our money where our mouth is and that is a premium feature that's a feature for the bankless citizens and then there's the debriefs after every monday podcast there's a 30 to 45 minute extra podcast where ryan and i as soon as we're done with the main podcast uh we say goodbye to the guests and then we just hit record no ads totally uncut unprepared unfiltered thoughts i swear a lot more on that version um (laughs) And that only goes out to the premium feed, right? And so like that is owned, that's owned by the Bankless Nation citizens. And so the idea is that like, even when the balance of podcaster revenue comes from sponsorships and starts to overweigh, we've seen it go back and forth a number of times. When it starts to overweigh premium subscribers, really that just means is that we actually have more resources to fund into making and improving the product for premium subscribers. And so it naturally kind of keeps itself in some sort of equilibrium there. Yeah. So you kind of brought up a, a really nice segue into your editorial process, which mm-hmm. I know you guys say you're not you're not journalists, but I want to talk a little bit about how you manage the idea of what needs to be disclosed, what doesn't right. need to be disclosed. As you mentioned, you literally now have a product for premium subscribers that's like, here's what we're investing in. In the traditional journalism world, you're not allowed to do that. Right. <laughs> or if you if you do it, you have to have it sort of in a passively managed fund right. or you have to have yeah. like big disclosures about like how much of a specific asset you guys own. In the influencer world, it's never disclosed at all. Right. People mm-hmm. short tokens that they're telling people to buy all the time. So how does that sort of process work for you guys internally? When do you think you need to say like to the public, hey, I've acquired a bag of let's pick a nice safe coin usdc um, <laughs> a bag of usdc <laughs> nice good, good old bag of usdc with hope a big it old go, hole hope in it. it doesn't go down <laughs> yeah um so what do you think about that like sure. disclosure process do you have something mm-hmm. formal is it just sort right. of as you guys feel a need to yeah so i think we bankless has the best disclosures in the crypto industry so you can go to bankless.com slash disclosures and while you, and you will see the bankless bags fund portfolio you'll see it yeah you will not see percentages interesting although if you were uh, a good enough snoop you could yeah, find sure. the you could find the addresses on chain and you could figure it out but then also in addition to that it has all every single one of mine and ryan's angel investments it has all of our personal token holdings so we, we have like the best disclosures in the industry i would say yeah um and then there's like there's another additional component which like when ryan and i after doing like 500 plus episodes and each of them are almost 99% of them are over an hour long. Like people get to know us pretty well. Like you start to get to know the people behind the microphone and the camera. And that I think is unique in this industry because it's a crypto is a constant conversation. And so I'd like to think, I hope that longtime bankless listeners can see the authenticity that me and Ryan try and lead with. Hopefully I'm not being naive in that, but like, we are here to make the world a better place. That's why we started Bankless. Also, we started Bankless to make crypto a better place because we can't make the world a better place understanding the current state that crypto's in with all of our volatility and scams and rug pulls, right? Like we need to fix that, yeah. right? And so like we want to lead by example. And then like we've built up a lot of social capital. Just like people trust us because of our track record. Like we don't we don't buy and dump tokens, we don't do the pump and dumps. We stick to our guns. We stick to what are what we're good at, and like, yes, I could have a private wallet that everyone doesn't know about, and I could be like counter trading uh, the bankless nation, if you will. 
But then if you actually look at the content, you would actually see not very many like impetuses of just like David really just talked about that token one at one point in time. And then he talked about yeah. it again and again and again, like that, that's actually like never really happened. And so you can kind of just infer, I think, from our behaviors that it's just like not a game that, that we play in. And now I guess I can I'm just kind of stating that like without like true deep evidence. But that's kind of why I go back to like, yo, there's 500 plus episodes thousands of hours of me and Ryan on YouTube. And I think you can kind of come to a pretty decent character judgment from all of that. Yeah, you also can't prove a negative, right? Yeah. You always could have a dark wallet somewhere. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hear you on that. So as both the listener basis of Bankless has grown, and as you two have gotten sort of more involved in these other parts of Bankless, your influence has increased in this space. And... You know, one of, I think, the the hardest parts is realizing that you now have more influence than you had. Yeah. And maybe that means you have a different level of responsibility, both to your listeners, but the industry at large than maybe you did before. Jokes you could make, you know, in your first podcast now, if you make them, someone might write about it. Yeah. It might become something that's read in a Senate hearing, right? right. The, the, the scope of what Bankless reaches now is much bigger than it used to be. How have you thought about navigating that responsibility and sort of right. the the dangers that come with a larger audience? Yeah. So there are, on this conversation, there are like easier things to prune off from behavior that I don't feel like is impacting me as a person. And so, like, the, the easiest one, like, one point in time, like, I got a couple comments from um, Bankless listeners that I need to stop swearing on the podcast. And at some point, like, the podcast grew large enough to the point I was like, okay, I should stop doing that. And that didn't feel, it didn't feel like I was being censored. It didn't feel like that that was an undue oppression upon my individual expression. Uh, and then also, at some point in time, I realized that, like, yo, like, people in Congress and senators, like, listen to Bankless. And so, like, at some point, I have to be a representative for the industry. Also, I don't want too much of that in my life uh, because like Bankless is supposed to be like a lifestyle business. The only yeah. uh, one of the reasons why Bankless works is because it's fun for me and Ryan. Like it is a fun activity. So I don't want to have too much oppression just because I have a large listener base that infiltrates and, and controls my character. And so like every once in a while on the weekly roll up, I'll slip out that uh, one of my favorite NFTs is a crypto dick butt. Like love crypto dick butts, uh, and I'm unapologetic about it, and yeah. not necessarily able to control my own personal like impulses <laughs> to talk about the things that I really find interesting and fun and <laughs> and and mimetic to talk about. Uh, and it's it's a little bit of a growing up story of just like you can talk about crypto dick butts, but you can't talk about them all the time, and it's just like annoying for some people. And so like I have to keep myself with guardrails on. But at some point in time, like I do ultimately get to be patient for the opportunity to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And it's more about choosing my moments, right? I could probably take more consideration to like the weight of the responsibility of crypto as a whole, like PR, the influence and reach that Bankless has. But I think one of the reasons why people like Bankless, or at, at least one of the reasons why I like that people like Bankless is that me and Ryan are super authentic. And again, that goes back to yeah. like, Bankless is a lifestyle business. This is our lifestyles. This is who we are. And at some point, if like Bankless stops scaling because people don't like who we are, so be it. Like I can do some sort of like management of myself and, and Ryan can do the same. But at some point, it just becomes untenable. Yeah. Do you think this would ever stop being fun? Or let me ask that a different way. 
what would have to change for this to stop being fun? Yeah, so like if we did another bull market and it looks like this last one where it was all good on the run-up and then the innovation started to get replaced by scams, that's going to happen. The pattern is going to happen. But if, man, if that trajectory doesn't improve, it's going to be frustrating. We are crypto optimists. And so like even with all the scams and the rug pulls, and if they do come, like there's always still the underlying structure of what makes a blockchain a blockchain. And I believe that a blockchain is inherently an optimistic piece of technology. And even when you have put scams on top of it, like that doesn't change the nature of these things. Still, like if another four to six years pass and like we still kind of have a, like a negative PR, like it was really cool for a moment in time from 2020 to 2021 to say I was in crypto. And is it I waited for moment? four to five years for that to be the case. And yeah. I only got one year of that. And I would like that to not be the case. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I used to think, I used to feel worse about that industry cycle than I do now. And I think it's because what we've seen, unfortunately, is everything outside of crypto is also going through that same cycle. And I think that, that like makes me more bearish on like the macro future of like this entire system that we've built. But, you know, we see this with banking right now, too, right? Where it's like, oh, like just like clockwork, a bunch of banks are failing again. And just like clockwork, a bunch of valuations that, you know, it's kind of these things where it's like you can say that there are a bunch of overvalued tokens. And then you can also say like, well, Netflix is down 85%. And, you know, are, are we really going to say that like, either Netflix being down 85% is justified or Netflix having the, the the top that it did was justified. And so there's this very kind of uncomfortable thing where I thought crypto was going to mature into something that resembled the more traditional markets. And the more traditional markets are actually starting to resemble crypto more. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's actually a theme I, I, we, we've said quite a lot on Bankless is like, as crypto is becoming modestly more stable, the stock market is becoming modestly more volatile. As people get more internet savvy with the natural arc of the internet, crypto becomes more usable. So these things are like converging together. But like what would make it less fun is like if my expectations about how fast the collision between society and crypto is, is actually way slower than I thought. Hmm. I mean, I'm still going to do podcasts, but like maybe I'd talk about other things. Like once upon a time I did a food podcast. I kind of, maybe I'll do more of those if crypto is still running in slow motion. So I want to take a little bit of a hard fork here sure. into the world of actual blockchain. So I think for those who don't listen to Bankless, their perception is it's sort of the unofficial ETH maxi show. Right. Yeah. ETH, Ethereum, nation state content. Yes. Space yeah, sponsor content. That, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's the North Korean media arm of the <laughs> Ethereum Foundation, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, I think there is a... Uh, you know, there, there's some interesting history there about the way you guys sort of grew up with Ethereum and sort of mm -hmm. those competitions between the only Bitcoiners and then like, no, there's actually a role for smart contracts and that sort right. of growth in of Ethereum. But, you know, crypto is inherently tribal from Super the whole perspective. Yeah. Yeah. How have you guys thought about navigating that as there are more and more competitive systems that are either doing things that Ethereum can't, and by that I mean things like Arweave, right, storage networks right. that are designed to do something very different that run smart contracts, and then alternative, you know, both layer ones and layer two systems out there nowadays. Yeah, I think like the average Solana community member 
to to blanket statement to archetype like missed the part of crypto's history where like the bitcoiners and the Ethereans were really going at it that was during like 2018 to 2020 and that part of crypto's as an industry's trajectory and ethereum as a trajectory missing that part also gives you an incomplete understanding about why bankless is the way that it is markets have memory in them uh, so like markets are based on market participants and market participants have like innate reflexes. When some activity, some event causes a market pain, then fast forward a few number of years later and that a similar event happens and that market will behave in that same way. It's like a learned system. And yeah. I think it's really important to view blockchain communities under kind of these similar collective intelligences. Like the Ethereans, this is why the tribe, tribes are just collective intelligences. Ethereans uh, were born in like this crucible of just being absolutely having the shit hazed out of us by Bitcoiners. And some of it was super dumb and some of it was super valuable. And that was one of the things like the, why my first podcast was so, so uh, useful in that moment was that it actually produced productive conversations between Bitcoiners and Ethereans. Like there was this camp in the Ethereum world and there still is traces of this of like ETH isn't money, ETH is gas. A token is, an, is a means to an end and we just want to forget about it as much as possible because we just want to do uh, run unstoppable applications on ethereum and so like the eth isn't money camp these are like the, uh, yeah. i would archetype these as like the woke the woke lefties of the crypto world to use a blunt abstraction uh and like a, a certain members of the ethereum community came together in that time i was like this is fucking ridiculous like Blockchains need security. You get the security from the value of the coin. The Bitcoiners are totally right that the whole like point of a blockchain is to produce a money and the money is related to the security and it's a part of this composed system. And people who are like, ETH is just gas, ETH isn't money, are one of the biggest threats to the Ethereum system as a whole. And like you can hear me getting animated, and that's what that's what like 2018 to 2020 was right. Yeah. Was like we had like conversations about Ethereum nodes, we had conversations about Austrian economics. We had conversations about like theories of money. And th that was like the crucible that a lot of Ethereum culture was born in. And that's where Ryan and I were born in. And so like we were like pounding this drum, not to convince outside community members about like what we thought was true about Ethereum, but to convince Ethereum itself. Like Ethereum itself didn't have consensus about what it was back then. And so we had to have our own internal conversations about the theory of a blockchain. And Ethereum had its own internal tribes that needed to like come to consensus about itself. And that was like a big learning moment for a lot of us because no one really knew the truth, but we were all slowly iterating in conversation. Uh, Ethereum is very pluralistic. We have a lot of internal tribes and we still do to this day. Yeah. But like, th I feel like over the era of 2018 to like 2020, 2021, the internal tribes settled a lot of internal disagreements and came to consensus about what makes a blockchain a blockchain, why we're designing Ethereum the way that it is, and just like the overall like crypto economic philosophy that has turned into like the Ethereum North Star. And so I think like when the newer communities come and see Bankless as like state-sponsored Ethereum media, part of it is like we're stuck in that mindset to some degree. Like it's like a part of our soul. Yeah. So one of the things, though, is that the Ethereum of today is incredibly different from the Ethereum you, got, you were arguing about in yeah. 2018 and 19. Big time. And, you know, like we, we've gone from a world where Ethereum's hallmark was it was a smart contract platform in one global state with atomic composability. And world computer. 
we kind of have a cosmosification of Ethereum that's taking place. And this sort of the, the ETH is money thesis is a lot more tenuous in a world where Ethereum is a data availability settlement layer and 99% of transactions don't happen on ETH. They happen elsewhere and get rolled back onto ETH or settled down to ETH through an L2 or a roll-up or something along those lines. So do you think the ETH is money thesis still is valid? Why would that uh, make the ETH is money thesis invalid? Because the utility of Ethereum has changed from an execution layer to a settlement layer. I think that that is actually what makes ETH is money as valid. The settlement layer of the Ethereum layer one, settlement implies like, okay, what are you settling? Uh, money and value. Uh, and so like the slowness and decentralized nature of the Ethereum L1 is in blockchain crypto economics terms synonymous with moneyness in, in the world of crypto money. And so like the execution layers, like the layer two tokens, OP, Arbitrum, yeah. like all the, those are not money. Those are capital assets that help settle money to the settlement layer. But it's the slow decentralized nature of the Ethereum layer one that is similar to money. Like the only two like things that I think can claim crypto money in this industry are Bitcoin and Ethereum, the slowest and most expensive blockchains. And mm -hmm. those, those properties, I think, are, are synonymous with, with moneyness. So from that thesis, right, there's a value in being a layer for which other things settle too. What does that settlement have to look like for it to be a legitimate use of those properties? So th the reason I'm kind of like talking about it in this way is like we have a lot of things nowadays that are some form of Ethereum scaling, right? We have we have rollups, we have ZK rollups, we have proper L2s, we have sidechains with bridges, right? We have a, a very complicated series of things that you can get to basically settle back to ETH. The one commonality between all of them is they are highly centralized. Whereas Ethereum is a quite decentralized network, everything that is going to become the usability layer for Ethereum is built in ways that are, are, are super centralized. And that's, you know, not, that's not kind of one of those things where it's like not necessarily a knock on them, but like no one has permissionless sequencers yet. No one has built decentralized layer twos yet. Many of the layer twos uh, or even sidechain systems, they're capped at like 100 validators because that's, a va that's the, you know, for Polygon, you can't fit more than 100 signatures in a block. So therefore, that is what Polygon has in terms of a validator capacity. That's not changing. So how do you think about kind of the relationship where like, up until this point, folks who've been using Ethereum have been settling and executing transactions on a decentralized layer. And now the sort of future of this is like actually people are going through something that is close to as centralized as a traditional financial provider. Even if the end state is settled onto Ethereum, that process of getting there, it's being mediated by a lot more intermediaries than sort of the original versions and visions for Ethereum. Right. So the there's an infinity different number of ways to settle on Ethereum. Uh, yeah. Coinbase, super centralized, settles on Ethereum. Me, a one-of-one one person, centralized in the one-of-one, one, settles on Ethereum. Hybrid decentralized models that we can think of, state channels between two parties, settle on Ethereum. And varying, varying levels of decentralization, right? You can, you can go across the spectrum of centralized and decentralized yes. settlement onto Ethereum. There is like the archetype for layer twos, which like the ETH types, like myself, Say like layer twos will, uh, in a decentralized capacity, uh, scale Ethereum. 
And when we say those words, we're actually using like the archetype of layer twos and not actually the specific implementations of layer twos as they stand today. Yes. And that's the way that Ethereum people talk about layer twos, like the layer two archetype. And why we talk about that is that like we, we claim, we believe that layer twos on Ethereum have the most credible path towards decentralization, regardless of the state of things that they are today. Like once upon a time, Ethereum in 2015 to 2016, super centralized and had a ton of work to do and took an unfortunately long amount of time, way longer than we thought to get to the point that it is today. And to also just slowly over time decentralized as in some sort of correlated fashion to the way that the, the technology developed. We think as Ethereum people that the same exact roadmap is going to happen in microcosms for layer twos. They are going to be built slowly with the intention of uh, and capability to fully decentralize into the grand scheme of things in the way that, that all the Ethereum people are talking today. Even before Bankless, I was writing articles about Ether as an asset and I would talk about proof of stake. And I wrote some of like my core pieces that like turned me from a no one to a someone in this space. Yeah. I would talk about like Ether, the triple point asset. And one of those properties was proof of stake. I wrote that article in 2019, like a full like three years before Ethereum actually turned proof of stake. And I got just like hazed by the Bitcoiners because they were like, he's just talking about a version of Ether that doesn't exist. They're just, the, the, you know, there goes Bankless again, sure. like spinning narratives. And then fast forward to where we are today, all of the historical articles that I wrote about Ether just become true because I made a bet that it would be eventually become this and then it became that. And when all the Ethereum people just talk about like layer twos and a version of themselves that isn't here yet, but we all think they will be, we're more or less making the same bet. Yeah, I guess the the, the challenge I'd, I'd push to that is the layer two systems have a very different economic structure behind them than a layer one does. And so I think we, we see this a little bit in the Cosmos space where there's a lot of incredibly interesting things being built on Cosmos. And it's sort of this network of a lot of semi-independent networks that are semi-connected as well. But the decentralization just isn't there at anywhere near what you see from other L1 ecosystems because each each Cosmos world is its own thing. Same thing on Polkadot with parachains, right? That like the minute you start to simplify the types of things that are running on the network or the number of different subnets or, you know, for, for the sake of argument here, right, it, any type of Ethereum scaling solution is its own network. And so for those to actually reach the levels of decentralization that you would need, there are some core technology innovations that haven't been done specifically around things like sequencers, right? Mm -hmm. That's just like a, no one knows how to do this yet. There's a few theoretical papers, but no one has figured out a way for permissionless sequencers to sort of exist and run. But the other piece is like, you know, and maybe just the answer is like, this is a, a, a further market evolution that's needed. But if you break up the value chain associated with L2s, the incentives to decentralize them, if they're purely execution layers, are a little bit thin, right? Because, it, you know, most execution layer systems have significantly fewer players and are significantly more centralized than settlement layer plays. So I'm kind of wondering, like, if, if we sort of expect these systems to be settling back down to Ethereum, is it reasonable to expect them to also be decentralized? Right. And so I, I think we're uh, zeroing in on probably the thing that we probably disagree about, which, which is mm. like the whole point about a layer two is that it doesn't actually have to be as decentralized as the layer one. That's why we make it a layer two. And so the whole idea is that Ethereum 
optimizes for decentralization. And then through what makes a layer two a layer two combination of cryptography and crypto economics, a layer two can actually sacrifice decentralization because the higher court of the layer one checks on it. And it makes the layer two makes commitments to the layer one about how it's going to operate. And then the layer one makes sure that it follows the rules that it committed to originally. And so you get the decentralization for all the layer twos because of the layer one. And so the layer twos can reduce their level of decentralization and then take those points that it has now, like skill tree points, take them away from decentralization, add them to execution. Uh, and so th that's always been the the Ethereum like layer two philosophy. Yeah, it's interesting because I think another another way to sort of put this would be that a lot of the architecture of Solana and the values of the Solana ecosystem are, are much more focused on real-time censorship resistance and real-time decentralization than cockroach decentralization, right? Then like, what, like, then what they, decentralization? Like cockroach decentralization. Like I haven't heard that term. Like a cockroach is the most likely animal to survive a nuclear war, right? So like the, the long-term, like how can we make sure that even in a state of, you know, World War III, the Bitcoin mm -hmm. ledger survives? Right. And there's a very high likelihood that the Bitcoin ledger survives World War III much higher likelihood than like the Polygon ledger surviving World War III or the Arbitrum layer, uh, ledgers, well, you know, than, than any sidechain layer uh, uh, surviving World War III. And it sort of seems like the the argument here is that it's sort of very similar to the, the Bitcoin world where the point of decentralization that matters is on the survivability and global availability of the ledger over necessarily the ability for someone to transact on the network in real time. Because you need decentralization of the execution layer if you want to maintain censorship resistance in, in real time as opposed to sort of the longevity aspect. Do you think that's kind of a fair assessment of kind of where where implicit values are shown? Yeah. Um, I may need you to ask the, the question again, but like the, the idea should be like if we lose the Arbitrum ledger in the ar archetype of layer twos, the, the future versions of layer twos, the Ethereum ledger will be able to settle your transactions, right? So if you had yes. money on the Arbitrum layer two, uh, the Ethereum layer one, the the Supreme Court of the Ethereum network of chain system will always be able to uh, pull back your money from wherever it is in its network of layer twos, layer threes, layer fours, layer fives. Yeah, even if your layer two through five gets banned by China, Russia, and the United States. Right, yes. And so like you can always have the freedom to exit, right? That's a super core philosophy of Ethereum is like you can exit to the layer one. And so if you can't access the layer two, three, four, five, six from the user interface or they get shut down or they get censored, the idea is you can just route your transaction through the layer one and then the layer one will pull you back your 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 money. And so it's that and that's why like the properties of decentralization and censorship resistance at the layer one are like of the utmost importance and why in a properly constructed layer two, it's okay to compromise those things up the stack. I guess part of the thing I'm wondering about is like that technical ability to exit to the layer one is a very important philosophical grounding principle for folks who are very heavy into blockchain. In a world where we're looking at this technology to disrupt, let's let's just pick the name of your show, Bankless, right? If we're actually talking about um, normal folks switching over from using centralized, regulated U.S. banking institutions to building something fully on chain, the amount of technical know-how needed to exit to the L1 is pretty high. 
So how do you think about that relationship between what is technically possible and then what a user could be expected to know? Like the fact that the exit to L1 in the banking industry is the FDIC comes in and buys your bank and suddenly there's money in your account, just like there was yesterday, is a pretty yeah. elegant failure state from the perspective <laughs> of a user. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just a technical problem, right? Uh, and all technical problems can get solved, right? The the big the big team working on this is is layer two B, right? In Bartek, the solution landscape for pulling back your money from from the layer X down to the layer one. That's just, like that's a that's a startup question. Like call for startup, uh, and okay, maybe maybe we naively waltz into the future of a bajillion chains on Ethereum, and like no one builds that. But if it is technically possible, and then we need it, someone will build it, right? So that that I would just put that into the uh, the market of the responsibility of the startup world to to fix. The matter is that like you make sure that it's possible to build it on the chain, and then maybe we don't need front end UIs to actually get that done because we actually never actually see the censorship of layer twos, layer threes, layer fours, and maybe that's the world that we live in. But the idea is that when the time comes. The, the fact that it's possible will create the demand to exit. If that if the demand to exit ever comes about and people don't know how to do it, someone will build that. Because it's, pr it's pretty easy to just like, hey, I've built yourself an exit button. Also, it charges you 0.1% or 1% sure. of your exit, right? Like that's just an incentive. Yeah, I guess it's like my core thesis here is that layer twos are easier to kill. And they're easier to kill because they're more centralized. And like, so for example, if... USDC on Ethereum were hacked. I think there's a very, I'm, I'm curious your, your, your response here. There's a very, very low chance that the Ethereum community would vote to rewind the chain and fix the bug. The is, L1, I think, my probably, assessment. that, that yeah. feels close to zero, although yes. that would be an interesting experiment. Right. But I, I think that the chances there is it would probably be fixed in a different way where there'd be like a snapshot and then they, the USDC would burn them and reissue them. There'd be, there'd be something that wasn't you know, rewinding the chain to fix the problem. I think in an L2 or in an application-specific, you know, chain that settles back to Ethereum, they would rewind the chain. In the and, cur today's current state of things? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that for me, that becomes a, a place where the model of fractal scaling can become one where governments are able to assert more control and more influence through the risk of regulatory actions. Like, no one's going to convince the global Ethereum community to fork out a bunch of transactions that settled a few months ago. That might be different when you're talking about, you know, uh, a more decentralized or a more single-use scaling solution. Yeah, I, I love this question, actually. I love the, this conversation. So the idyllic layer two optimistic arbitrumless because like these these two chains are supposed to be ethereum equivalent ethereum like evm equivalent yeah. they are supposed to be ethereum yeah. but more more block space and so that actually means like at a very deep level in the ideal case of these layer twos you actually don't really see a big line drawn between when ethereum stops and when optimism starts and so like right now we're having the conversation of like oh yeah what if usdc on optimism was hacked would we roll, roll back the chain? Yeah. And today we would say yes. And once upon a time in Ethereum in 2016, we also said yes. Fast forward right. to today, we would say no. And like the whole process about the idea of layer two is like I said earlier, like once upon a time, I wrote about Ether as a proof of stake currency back in, in its proof of work format. And then today, all of my articles are correct, even though I wrote them when they were wrong. 
And that's the same thing about layer two. It's like once upon a time in the future, there might be some exploit on optimism. And in the future, it will be more sufficiently decentralized than it is today. The same trajectory that Ethereum took. And at some point in time, the conversation, maybe I'm back on this podcast and you're talking about, okay, I don't think layer threes can stand up to nation state layer resistance. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably yeah. right. And then I'll come back a couple of years later. I'm like, I don't think layer fours can stand up to nation state censorship resistance. Like, yeah, you're probably right. And the idea is like the margins of crypto are always super fragile. The newest things are always fragile and they take time to harden. This is just the nature of open source code. And as these things become more robust and as we finish building them, they will slowly harden and calcify as crypto economic systems do. I think that's a super, super reasonable point to look at the future of kind of how these things scale out, right? Because like at the end of the day, everything starts small enough to kill. And the goal is to get to a place where it escapes that censorship choke point as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, there, there's no L2 solutions today that are remotely close to that. But Ethereum has very clearly surpassed the point where it could fall to that sort of a system. Right. And Ethereum also presents the model for layer twos. So because Ethereum did it, we actually have we've done it once before. So now all the layer twos also have been shown a path as to how to do it. Like Optimism recently got their second client for the OP stack. Uh, Arbitrum, I'm pretty sure, is working on something similar. But the idea is like with this new like evolution in, in cryptography that all these cryptography nerds are super hyped about called Nova, the idea of, of ZK roll-up parallel processing becomes a lot more feasible, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. And so yeah. like we have all the, in the same way that once upon a time we finished the R&D phase for Ethereum and then it just became an engineering challenge, we have finished the R&D phase for layer twos and now it's just an engineering challenge. You know, it's funny. I, I wouldn't say we are done with the R&D phase for layer twos. Yeah, yeah. not as a hook, because like layer twos are so multivariate, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also interesting because, you know, the scale factor that a lot of these L2s present now, do you think they're sufficient? Like back in 2020, I was at Bison Trails and a bunch of the work I was doing was on ETH2 infrastructure for, uh, you know, Kraken and Coinbase and all these companies that needed to get ready to do the staking. And the estimates that folks were giving in terms of the scalability you would get from Ethereum layer twos were several orders of magnitude above what we're seeing today in production mm -hmm. environments. Like there, there are only a few that are pushing three digits of throughput nowadays, and it's low right. three digits at that. Like, do you think the scale has matched what you were expecting to see at this stage of the L2 process? No promise by the Ethereum community has ever come on time. <laughs> ever. Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember in 2019, no, 2018, think like, man, 2018, proof of stake, proof of stake comes away. next year. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've never, the Ethereum world has never made a promise that it's actually made on time. It has never made a promise that it hasn't also kept. Yeah. So there's been a lot of versions of this, though, right? Like, the sort of active roadmap developing is a very interesting piece of culture. And the mm -hmm. sort of... I think you guys play a really big role in this is sort of the story that the Ethereum community tells itself about what the Ethereum world is doing. And I'm always fascinated by this because there's a level at which from the outside, it can feel either like a very open and honest software development community that sort of says, well, we thought execution layer sharding was going to be a thing, but actually, right. no, it's not. Actually, they're data only layers. Actually, they're only, right? And at the same time, the other version of that is this is a community that's consistently willing to change the narrative and sort of support whatever 
you know, that that sort of meme of like, I support the latest thing right. is like yeah, yeah, the yeah. Ethereum community on whatever the foundation sort of sets as the new scaling direction. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about both the role Bankless plays in that and like what that sort of very active evolution of scaling looks like? Yeah, I think it's important to start this conversation off with at least what I believe, which is these crypto economic systems are alive systems. These things are like organisms. The first like alive thing that the internet ever created was like a computer virus that could replicate and live on the internet. Then the the multicellular organisms of the internet are like crypto systems. They got organs, they got components, they got inputs and outputs, blah, 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 blah. And so like Bitcoin did the same thing. Like Bitcoin peer-to-peer electronic cash and written in the white paper is now like we are the current narrative of Bitcoin. The current thing of Bitcoin is completely different from that. Like, is it digital gold, uh, online store of value? Like different Bitcoiners will give you different answers. At one point in time, there was a division between these two people. One people wanted to be digital cash. Other people wanted to be digital gold. We call this the the block war debates, the civil war. Yeah. Ethereum had the ETH is money, ETH isn't money debate. Uh, it had the roll-up centric roadmap versus, uh, you know, the execution charting on the layer one debates. And so like, if it's not your tribe, it's moving the goalposts. Yes. If it is your tribe, it is d- narrative development and understanding. Which do you think it is? I think it's narrative development and understanding. And so like the idea is like these crypto economic systems have a desire to maximally express themselves. They, ha- they are alive. They have autonomy. They have like, agency. And they want to be something. They want to be some version of itself. And so Ethereum as the core developers are like the stewards of this thing that's blind, but tells the core devs what it wants. And so then the core devs discover things, they discover mechanisms. We were feeling around in the dark around how to scale Ethereum and we came up with Plasma. And we felt that that was like kind of right, but not totally right. And so like feeling around in the dark, it's like, we think we're like warmer, warmer. And then like optimism has this aha moment, like optimistic roll-ups, found it, right? Uh, and so then we we build that, and then like the Ethereum community like sees this as a discovery, optimistic rollups. There's consensus that this is by the community about this is the right path. Um, same thing with like EIP one five five nine. Like we lowered the Ether issuance from five to two per block, or five to three per block, three to two per block, and then discovered EIP one five five nine. And then the narrative of around Ethereum monetary policy was like first a absent, and then b slowly became minimum viable issuance, right? And so that was us discovering something that we deem to be optimal about Ethereum. Yeah. So the Ethereum community is discovering what Ethereum wants to be. And we are letting this organic research and development process actually define Ethereum. So like like you said, like fast forward into the years of, of today from the years of when Ethereum, the white paper started, it is a very different machine. Although there Super actually different. is a lot of parallels, but there is like the implementation details have changed and iterated and developed over time. And I think that that like if we had rigidly stuck to the Ethereum white paper, we would have like built this like bastardized version of Ethereum. And also it's worth noting that like it's the Ethereum community is actually the only community that can actually determine and discover what Ethereum wants to be. And then the Ethereum community, tribal as it is, looks towards Bitcoiners and be like, you guys are moving the goalposts. And it moves to Solana people and like, you guys are moving the goalposts, even though these communities are also engaged like in the exact same behavior about the discovery of their particular blockchains. 
yeah, it, it's you know the the crude analogy is we're all just slime mold, yes. right? And when it finds I a love, bit of food, we all yeah, just yeah. the decision to say we're going to fracture the Ethereum state was a very very interesting one because Are that was not something. Charting? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? The, 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 this idea to say that like Ethereum for all of its history has had one ledger and one global state that you could read from. Right. Execution charting always confused me. <laughs> yeah. But like it, but like the current the roll up centric roadmap of of Ethereum where you have data sharding and then you have bridges between rollups it's actually the same thing. <laughs> it's like uh, yeah. two different strategies to approach the same conclusion. It still scares me, I would say though, because like uh, so state proofs are still fairly immature and state mm-hmm. proofs will help a lot once those get developed out. But like one of the hallmarks of the blockchain ecosystem I know and love has always been that there is one state. Right. And there's this interesting thing happening with Ethereum, like on, on many other networks that predate Ethereum too. The state was always fractured, right? Like Polkadot fractured state, near fractured state, all of these like systems were using a pure parallelization of state model to scale. Solana is one single global state that's trying to Mm -hmm. just be as fast as possible. And the Ethereum version is a little bit of a hybrid, right? That there are isolated states that are interoperable and you can sort of establish trust between them using systems that are bridges. It's definitely a better world than the pure sharding ecosystems. But it's I, I think it's still very interesting that sort of a lot of the tooling to make that work doesn't exist yet, right? Transacting between Arbitrum and Optimism is not a solved problem at right. this point. And so I think it's the part to me that's really interesting is that the community and the developer community, right, who, who makes these calls, was very willing to sort of try something very different that isn't proven out yet and doesn't have like a, you know, oh, here's the compatibility layer, like the checkbox is checked, we're good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the bridges are just as, as incomplete as the rollups. With the same yeah. overall trajectory, right? Yeah. If, like, yeah. Well, I, they kind of need the rollups to mature and then the bridges can mature. But like the idea is like open source software gets better over time, gets more secure over time. We learn more oh, yeah. over time. And eventually like these cross-linkings become more robust and start to go from like one-off implementations to like actually enshrined infrastructure. Yeah. So there was a very cool piece of tech that was developed, built on Wormhole that was sort of this XDAP framework. And it existed for two weeks and then went away. And you'll, you'll, you'll see why in a second, but it allowed someone to call an anchor contract on Terra from Avalanche using a beachhead contract. And so there didn't need to be a full copy of anchor deployed on Avalanche. You just could simply do a messaging call back to it. And that would sort of interact with that contract and produce your results on Avalanche. And I always thought that was a very interesting model that I wish had sort of been deployed elsewhere where like solving this problem of how do you communicate between multiple rollups multiple layers like deploying uniswap on every rollup is definitely not the solution yeah, right probably, yeah. for for one you're fracturing your liquidity in a really really rough way but second it just the attack surface you end up creating at that point is much much larger so i'm really curious to to think about what that looks like in the future why is multiple implementations of uniswap increasing attack surface Unless you're truly bit-bit compatible with the EVM engine, oh, which most of these yeah. are not, you right. technically have to re-audit and you're introducing runtime vulnerabilities right. okay. each time you deploy on something that's not bit-bit compatible. Sorry, what, what was the original question? Oh, uh, just, just sort of like, 
when you're looking at these sort of these structures and systems, like I think there's a thesis you can come to here where this type of scaling is actually the hardest version to do. Mm. Where like you've taken something that was the core of what made Ethereum special, and you're saying we're actually going to break it into parts, and eventually it'll come back together when the tooling's there. But for now, interact in your own ecosystems. Like, what do you think is the growth model for? What are right now, like Arbitrum has to build its own ecosystem. Optimism has to build its own ecosystem. Polygon POS has to build its own ecosystem. But eventually they're going to all kind of come together. Uh, For the folks you've talked to who are thinking about what growth and what adoption looks like over the next few years before that connective fiber is sort of rebuilt, uh, what are folks thinking about from that perspective? It's kind of a, a tricky problem to navigate. Yeah, I think the the way that this model of like layer two scaling uh, and growth like happens in the near term is that each one of these ecosystems wants to build interoperability inside of itself before it starts to span across layer twos. So like you have the optimism super chain and then you have the ZK sync hyper chains. Basically, they're all just like fractal scaling. Ethereum spawns the optimism mainnet layer two, and then with the OP stack, you get multiple layer threes, and then you know square root that for layer four, square root that for for layer fives, and you get this like tree like structure. Arbitrum with the launch of the Arbitrum DAO uh, built out their layer three model, so anyone can build a layer three of Arbitrum on Arbitrum. zk sync and in, in the, the zk yeah. rollup world has like the same thing with like their circuits and like what they call hyperscaling hyperchains. It's all the same model, so it's like tree tr- tree structure, and. To me, the, the reason why I feel resonance with that is because that's how the ledgers of TradFi work, right? You got yes. the central bank, digital ledger, and then you got the commercial banks, and then you got fintech, and then you got, I don't know, some more, some more ledgers after that, and it's a tree structure. Yeah. And so like, if Solana wants to be this like one single global state at, at, at the bottom settlement layer, why can't you also like it's going to reach its maximum capacity, right? Like, unless unless the the design philosophy of Solana is that it hits infinite scale, maybe maybe that is what it is. But like the idea is that like if you can build a Solana, you could also build a Solana on top of a Solana, right? You could yes. still do the the fractal tree structure, even with uh, a design philosophy of like maximum scale on every single chain, and like you're going to increase the scale. It doesn't matter what the scale of your chain is, yeah. like you can just always add more. Uh, and so it's, and the, the other, I think like useful perspective, I don't think we have the time to go into it, but it's like biomimicry in crypto economic yes. systems. And I think that like the, the biomimicry of modular chains where each module can be broken up into a competitive gene, if you will, and each gene is competitive. Uh, and like, that's kind of like what the OP stack is going after. We start to build like higher expressions in more app specific layer twos, layer threes, layer fours, uh, that can fit into corners of the internet. Uh, and then, so all of these like optimism, because everything's built on the OP stack base, the open source tech standard, the interoperability between optimism chains is like as synchronous and coherent as composable as we hope what would like Solana as a shared single settlement layer would also be. Like there's technical implementations, but that's the idea. Yeah. So, you know, this is the piece I think that like we probably disagree on more than anything else, which is that I I think that the the bio tree system is super interesting. It is the way TradFi is built. It is also all of TradFi's failings come from that fundamental architecture, right? That when Robinhood users got rugged from being able to transact with GameStop, that was because the tree, one branch down, 
failed, right? That was when their clearinghouse was like, you do not have enough liquidity for this. We're going to turn off your right to do these types of trades. So was it the structure that failed or was it the censorship and lack of transparency of the structure in that particular part of the structure that failed? I think that they are functionally one and the same. That anytime you're building a nested tree system, even if it is fully transparent, the the points of censorship, like for for example, your L4 can get censored by your L2, right? That, that's just a, a, a fact of a stack, right? Every time you're building something on a foundation, that foundation needs to be solid. And that I think there's a interesting architecture there to say like, can we take our tree and then can we build another tree on top of it? And can we shift them 90 degrees and suddenly build a lot more interconnects between them? But in the absence of that sort of interbranch and interleaf fiber, we do get into a place where every layer you move up is, you know, inheriting the security of the layer below you is also 100%. inheriting the censorship ability of the layer below you. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And like this goes back to the idea of just like, so w- once upon a time in the future, we are going to solve Ethereum's layer two centralization and censorship issues, and that yes. will become a solved problem. Of Playing course. that flag. Once yes. we solve that problem, I think that's a fair statement. For the it's record. like it's not another new engineering problem to take that solved problem and apply it to a layer three or to a layer four. What right. the new engineering problem is is dropping the cost of spinning up a new chain lower, so that you can have an order of magnitude more chains at the layer three, and then you know say like. Hopefully, the bull case for the, this whole system is that it costs you $100 to spin up a new chain. And yeah. then, and so the idea is like, once we crack that nut of the layer two, you don't actually have, there's no new engineering problem to apply that at the layer three, at the layer four, at the layer five. And according to the protocol sync thesis, one of the theses that we've developed at Bankless is that the most trustless and censorship resistant and credibly neutral protocols become the most adopted protocols because of those properties. And so if there's two layer threes and one is still censored and one is censorship resistant, then people will adopt the credibly neutral censorship resistant one over the censored one. And so the idea is that like, once you crack that, out of, at, you don't think that's true? I said, I hope that's true. I hope I that's think true, what we yeah. saw in, What we saw in the bull market is that is not necessarily true. Yeah, and also crypto has a lot of progress to make. Yes, yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I think that I think that's kind of interesting. I, I would say my 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 potential critique of it is that it's a theoretically very elegant architecture, and the question is, do users have the discipline to do it correctly? Like, if we start building the L threes and fours, sorry, if we start adopting the L threes and fours before the L twos are decentralized, it's basically a can we walk and chew gum? And that's always a hard question in crypto: of can we walk and chew gum? <laughs> So yeah. I'm I'm curious to see how it works out in the future too. But sure, yeah, certainly. there's no doubt that like there's no technical reason an L2 can't be as decentralized as an L1. There's just um, economic considerations and adoption considerations to see. Yeah, I, yeah. I would also say like there's a the flip side of the conversation with like there are use cases for chains to be censorable, right? Like yes, uh, a bank would like if if we ever put a bank on a roll up. That we're going to have to make compromises about this the centralization and censorship resistant nature of that particular rollup, and the idea is like some some like service, uh, some like audit auditing service like Layer Two Beat will tell you exactly what the compromises of that Layer Two are, or Layer Three or Layer Four or whatever. And so the idea that we can uh, like again the OP stack is a module for open source chains. You can put in different modules and replace them. And if we need 
compromise modules in order to increase the use cases of certain use cases of, of change, we can do that. And that, but that will always be on the margins. And that's mm. like I said, like the margins will be the most fragile part of this. And this is how like trees, trees grow. Like the furthest branches out are the tiniest and the easiest to break. And the trees that are furthest away or the, the leaves that are furthest away are going to be the first ones to fall off when the times get stressful, right? This is a natural response to stress. Uh, and, and so like as centralized layer two, layer three, layer fours get built, um, the they will stay they will stay further out on the margins they will naturally stay further out on the margins and this is a way for ethereum as a system to be flexible to optimize for both completely cypherpunk censorship resistant use cases while also allowing for banks to ultimately come be included into the same system yeah we could talk about this for four more sure. hours but uh <laughs> we should sure. probably move on to the next topic because i think this is this is super fascinating though and i would love to kind of dig into this more with you at some point because i think there's a lot to talk about here 100 percent, brother so i want to talk a little bit about your journey into experimenting with stuff on solana I think over the years, you guys, and I'm using you and your co-host synonymously here, but the, yeah, we're kind the of bankless persona yeah. Yeah. has had a few run-ins with the Solana ecosystem. Oh, yeah. um, Tolly's been on the show once or twice. You guys have had some opinions about the network in general, but you recently bought, I think, your first Solana NFT, one of the mm -hmm. Mad Lads mints. Yeah. Uh, -huh. That's right. uh, what convinced you to take the jump? Oh, I, th I thought they looked cool. I like yeah. the, the 20s noir... Uh, I also like that it, the project itself made a, an ambitious attempt to actually look like real humans. That's a hard thing to go after. Uh, I just thought they looked cool, so I bought one. Yeah, that's that's super fair. What was your experience transacting on the network? Yeah. What were you surprised by? What did you expect? Did anything fall short of what you were hoping for? It was in Coinbase, sold some ETH for Solana, and then uh, opened up Phantom Wallet on my browser and sent the Solana there. And then opened up the marketplace that was it. I think it was Magic Eden, even though there was, I think, a different yeah. dedicated marketplace towards this particular project that I didn't fully go down that rabbit hole. Opened up Magic Eden, uh, shopped around for a little bit, like kind of compared some properties, tried to get the layer of the land for what the ones looked like that I liked, and then bought the one that looked like me. And that was that. Pre pretty open and shut. I will say that like I've had absolutely terrible experience with MetaMask and Ledger. Says for like two years, actually. I don't know what's going on with it. I don't yeah. know what the hell's going on, man. <laughs> and so, like, I did not run into that. Uh, and so, that was lovely. Um, everyone in, in my Ethereum circle is like, dude, just use Frame. I'm like, uh, I'll just like wait for the problem to go away and I'll sleep on it. And like, usually that works. You've engaged with some of the technical conversations around how Solana's architecture is different from Ethereum. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that we kind of got in that sort of tweet beforehand was like, there's a lot of folks in the Ethereum community that comment on Solana architecture that <laughs> haven't put in the time to understand right. it yet. And so a lot of their critiques, there, there are legitimate critiques of any blockchain architecture out there. But a lot of the ones we get about Solana, are, are they, they seem like they're from folks who haven't really read up on it, don't really understand what sure. the trade-offs are of the network architecture. Do you feel like you have a good grasp of that network architecture of Solana? The specific implementation details of Solana? No. Okay. So... As you're going through that process, like, you know, you guys have developed a lot of sort of opinions about all sorts of different types of networks. What is that sort of based on? How do you navigate that that difference between right. like 
you know, we've talked extensively here about sort of the technological philosophies that Ethereum is built on and sort of your your faith from a philosophy of building perspective that that network is something you believe in into the future. When you're looking at something like Solana, I, I think sometimes from from tweets or some of the comments you've made, you, you don't necessarily view the network in the same way. Is that accurate or has that been sort of taken out of proportion by the Internet? Sorry, in the same way as what? As Ethereum. That like this is a fundamental architecture that you have faith in is sort of the state ah, that you, right. you you know your statement on Ethereum. What about Solana? Either uh, in, do you believe that about Solana, or are there right. are there questions you have? What what are sort of some of the trepidation that comes up both right. on the show and in some of your tweeting? Right, and to more directly uh, go after technical that, gibberish. That the, the, yeah, <laughs> technical gibberish. Uh, the the person that like brought up this question was like. Um, what was that tweet? It was something along the lines of, uh, does David, uh, is it David like able to comprehend the actual technical details of Solana? And then they yeah. like finish up like when he, when the correct answer is no, putting the words in my mouth, although that is what I said, uh, can you ask him why he continually comments on it? Right. And like, it's a, in the other people in the Solana ecosystem is like, David's just a fucking podcaster. Like, why is he talking technical yeah, stuff it, about, it, about like, uh-huh. I think that it's completely fine to comment on something that you may not have the utmost technical understanding right. of. I, I think really like the, the subtlety in the question, it wasn't exactly asked this way, is like you have commented on the technical architecture of Solana before. Right. What about that either? Um, what, what's, the, what's the motivation of that? Yeah. 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 Uh, just and just to pick up on like the podcaster note, right? Like it's really easy to go after podcasters and be like, they don't know yeah. anything. They're just podcasters. I think like if you looked back at like my historical writing, it's pretty technical. As far as someone who does not code, I still hang out with like ETH dev gigabrains, right? Like Tim Bako, Danny Ryan, Justin Drake, Preston Van Loon. Like I've been talking to yep. these guys for years. And yes, I don't know how to code, but understanding crypto economic architecture, like crypto economics as a study is real new. Like it was born real recent and so like while i don't have a well i don't have like coding skill set and i'm not a developer actually understanding these systems as a pattern is where my particular skill set comes in if i wanted to get really narrow and precise my particular skill set is understanding the relationship between human culture and crypto economic code that's the thing that fascinates me the most and so like why do i feel confidence making comments about the architecture of solana when i actually can't articulate about the nature of it right Yes. It's a, it's a big meta question. Why do I feel confidence in that? It's because like one of my, my, one of my core beliefs about this crypto world is that if we like re-rolled the dice of the human experiment, the, if we were like in a simulation and we just hit refresh, 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 and we arrived at the moment where humans uh, discovered crypto economics and the, this crypto industry, my belief is that the Ethereum design philosophy, the roll-up centric roadmap, layer twos, layer threes, fractal scaling, all smart contracts, proof of stake, those properties that the Ethereum research team has, like I said, emergently discovered, the humans would re-emergently discover that 99.9% .9 of the times that the simulation is refreshed. And so like that gives me confidence about Ethereum. Why do I make confident statements about Solana? It's because it's easy to lump Solana into other similar design architectures that I think are attempting to find what is like the true resonance with crypto economic design that I that I believe that Ethereum has discovered and otherwise like lump Solana into a camp that 
we've seen others fall into the trap of, which is like the juice layer one trap. And so understanding a Solana as like what I would call a juice layer one, it will start to exhibit the behaviors of all the other similar juice layer ones because of the compromises that it's made. And so even without understanding the technical nuances of Solana, I can still categorize it as a juice layer one, and it's made similar compromises that many other juice layer ones have, even what, if it is you... the most advanced juice layer one. And I'll, I'll stop there. No, no. So uh, I think there, there's kind of two pieces I want to dig into here. One is that you sort of were talking about some of the innate characteristics of Ethereum, and implicitly there is that there's characteristics of that that Solana doesn't share. What what are those? Just kind of to start there. A intentionally decentralized, constrained layer one is probably the big common denominator that's different. Ethereum is intentionally constrained at the layer one. Say more about that. Okay, so small small blocks. This is the, the small blocks archetype. Don't go back between like the Bitcoin wars and the Ethereum people. Like small blocks or small throughput at the layer one produces decentralization and therefore also security and settlement guarantees. I'm not sure that's necessarily accurate, right? The, the only reason I'm going to push you on this is like that can feel like a goalpost moving, I think, to say that like Ethereum is intentionally small blocks. And to a certain extent, yes, but the surge on Ethereum is literally about creating more data availability and more block space. Mm -hmm. So there's an intentional movement in Ethereum to Not on the layer one, block though. space. On the layer one, yeah. It, it puts uh, the blob space for EIP4844, which is like the main, yeah. the main character of the surge, is about creating a new class of block space that layer twos can maximally leverage. So like the extra block space comes because layer twos can leverage blob space better than anything else, better than the layer one can. And you would consider that not part of Ethereum? Uh, no, I would, why? Well, because of that expanding block space then? Layer, on the like, layer twos. But the, the idea about layer twos is that you have compression, right? So yeah, yeah, you make no, a bunch of but, transactions on the layer two and then they get compressed into a bundle and then pushed down to the layer one. And so the block space stays the same, but the economic density of transactions is higher. But there's only, what, 0.1 megabytes per second of DA on Ethereum. And the plan is to expand that to have more actual space to settle on the L1, right? More compressible the... space, right, correct. Right, but like the actual... So like the actual data rate per second of Ethereum mm -hmm. is going to go up from 0.1 right. to, I think, to, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but there, there are a number of proposals to actually literally add more data availability to the L1 itself, right? Yeah. And if we go into like the details of like, okay, but then the blocks are going to get bigger, it still doesn't change like this small block constrained base layer throughput philosophy of Ethereum. Uh, so I, I guess like there, there's two pieces here. One is like from when, when Ethereum was on proof of work, sure, certainly. In the move to proof of stake, we've actually seen, and you know, this is this is from someone who worked on ETH2 infrastructure at Bison Trails, right? We have actually seen a massive consolidation in ETH2 infrastructure. It's still the most decentralized proof of stake network, but we've gone from hundreds of thousands of nodes around the world to less than 10,000 when you look at the number of actual not validators, because ETH2's terminology is different than the rest of the industry, but, you know, networked boxes that are running, uh, like full nodes, producing software on them. Full nodes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full, full nodes that are also consensus participating. We've seen that number drop, and we've seen it consolidate onto cloud providers. We also have seen the system requirements to run a, a node start to creep up. Like, if you want to track the full world of the Ethereum state now, you actually have to run 
multiple different networks at the same time to make sure you have a real-time version of what that state looks like. So I'm just challenging this a little bit because some of that sort of philosophy you're talking about, I think applies very well to ETH1, but in this sort of new version of post proof of stake migration, a lot of those characteristics are actually starting to resemble something that's a lot closer to, to Solana or Cosmos, and that the requirements to run these machines are getting heavier and heavier, and also the bandwidth requirements are starting to increase. So I just wanted to like push back a little bit on that, because sure. I think there is, there's maybe a subtlety of what the present is versus what these right. new directions are. Yeah. I think that it's, it's important to focus on just like, why do the ETH developers build a blockchain in the way that they do? And yes, there are... Yeah. Uh, technical changes and Ethereum in the layer one is getting more complex. And now we have two, two different types of blob space and this yes. blob space behaves differently. And now the, the, the validator requirements or the node requirements, the computational resources are also changing and also perhaps like the, uh, progressing. Then there's also like the part of the Ethereum roadmap, like the verge, which is like, okay, let's also prune a bunch of shit and also yeah. make like light clients that, that you don't, that you can run on your cell phone. Right. And so, right. like, it's always there's always a yin and yang to Ethereum node development, and sometimes we add computational costs and resources and, and computer requirements, and then sometimes we take them away. Yeah. But like, it's, it's still when you zoom out, you will always have a constrained layer one philosophy, even if like in a temporary, if you zoom in and like look at it in a narrow band of the year 2023, we're like, oh, Ethereum's like increasing its node resource requirement after it's done a bunch of like uh, mitigation work. Right. And and so like there's always just like we could we could juice Ethereum the layer one up to to the tits. Right. But we don't do that. And so like, yeah, the, like the, the constraints of the Ethereum layer one can can shift left and right. But the, the philosophy of a constrained layer one, that is an Ethereum philosophy, even sure. when we use different tricks, cryptographic tricks, distributed networks, tricks, et cetera, et cetera, to eke out optimizations. I will say like eking out optimizations uh, is still not the same as changing a philosophy about whether you have a constrained layer one or not. What do you mean by uh, juiced layer one? Uh, turning up the data throughput of a layer one up to its theoretical maximum before it topples over, somewhere, somewhere around that band. Like understanding where it would topple over and then going like not that far. And what do you see as the problem of that? Uh, fragility. Interesting. Like DDoS attacks, spam attacks. And then there's also the, the conversation of just like with increased validator requirements, you reduce the ability to who can run a node. You can also reduce the ability who can participate in consensus. Uh, and so like when you have a constrained validator set and also just like the genesis of the soul token, as in my opinion, compared to the genesis of the ETH token is also just like different stories. And one in my mind is, has a much more, uh, a much longer and rich history of distribution than the other, right? And so, like, you have yeah. this combination of, like, the Solana validator requirements and also the centralized sole issuance um, versus, like, the lighter validator requirements of Ethereum and the five-plus years of highly distributive proof-of-work. And so, like, when you compose all of these things together, it just, like, tells a story. And one is, like, well, in my opinion, Solana is tilted towards like some winners and and produces some losers and ethereum hmm. it's all every economic system is always going to be tilted there's no way to produce a completely balanced sure. economic system the idea is like how balanced can we get it and in my mind ethereum is maximally balanced and also in my mind solana is tilted in a way that i don't think you can put 
a large structure on top of a tilted foundation. And that is like my main um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so so one of those is like Ethereum would not be able to launch today like it did back then. Hundred percent. Yeah, no no lawyer would let Ethereum 100%. if it launched today right. launch like it did originally, and so that yeah. is definitely a huge advantage there. So in your mind, the hardware requirements are more important than the asset requirements because, like again, to participate in consensus on Ethereum, you need thirty two ETH, which is mm-hmm. not a little amount of money. Right now, granted, it, it you can consider that an investment as opposed to a capital cost, but right. it still is. You know, the amount of money you need to run a consensus participating ETH validator, ninety-five percent of the world can't afford that. Right. Yeah. And which is not to say the hardware requirements of something like Solana or something ninety-five percent of the world can afford, but like the three thousand dollars to buy the hardware to run a Solana validator is much less than the hundred dollars you need to buy the hardware to run a an ETH validator. But also the thirty-two ETH is a pretty serious capital outlay to actually participate in consensus. But you sort of view that as a better trade-off than having higher hardware requirements. Yeah, because that's not really the end of the story. To say that the end of the story is that you need thirty-two ETH to participate in Ethereum uh, validation, that's ignoring a lot of like further innovations, right? Uh, and so you actually there there's ways for the actual Ethereum protocol to reduce 32 down to 16 down to eight, and there are discussions on the ETH sure. research forums how to do that. So that's one vector right. of decentralization. Then the other vector of solution for this is you have something like DVT technology, distributed validator technology. We call this squad staking. Uh, and so yeah. if if you need 32 ETH, you can grab four friends who all have eight ETH, and you can create a virtual node, and then the limit is eight ETH, or actually whatever the limit is, whatever you need to produce 32 to get to to get to that number. Sure, but that's not really running your own validator, right? I mean, this is sort of the argument, which is like all of those same types of things also could apply to a network like Solana, where it's like, oh, you can get four friends together, and then suddenly your $3,000 hardware cost goes down to 800 bucks, right? Which is still... If you split a Solana validator into four and have those four validators spread around the world, are you able to keep up with the chain? Uh, it would be a single validator. But on Ethereum, it's still one validator, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah, like, it is one validator. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah you're right. right. So you're so, right about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's just interesting to look at like... Uh, what the long term of these things kind of look out to because hmm. one of the things that you know i was a real big believer that like everyone is going to run their own ethereum node but you look at like node watch or you look at some of the other like node trackers and like one of the weird things about solana is because the hardware requirements are higher it runs very poorly in the cloud and so we actually have a very low amount of cloud penetration relative to ethereum where over 50% of the Ethereum nodes are run in the cloud nowadays, which I think is just like, this is not to say like it's good or bad is it, for is Ethereum. Is it Ethereum validator nodes and not full nodes? Yeah. Like the, the ones yeah, actually staking? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, because when you can run things very easily, it's also very easy to run on AWS, which is right. some, a very sort yeah. of interesting like trade-off interesting of nuance. like, yeah, like there's decentralization philosophy, which is like the Ethereum version of like, let's make it really low and easy for people to run nodes, which is super credible. And then there's sort of the Solana argument, which is like, if it's too easy for people to run nodes, they're going to run them in the cloud. Mm. And so it's it's very interesting to see like these two communities coming at the problem space from two very different directions. Yeah, that is an interesting nuance. I do remember like, in my early formative years of crypto, Bitcoiners would always yell at Ethereum people because we would run our nodes in the cloud. And back in those days, Ethereum was proof of work. When they talked about nodes, right. they talked about just just downloading the chain. Ethereum as a chain was too untenable to manage at the solo level that people would just run the nodes in the cloud. I usually, I usually don't give too much credence to the whole 
runs in the cloud thing because like cloud servers are like water. It's like, it, and things just flow downhill, right? It, since they are the easiest to spin up, uh, naturally you're going to see a supply of virtual nodes yeah. just naturally be spun up. It makes, that's a stronger argument for non-validating nodes, just for like quote unquote full nodes than it is yeah. for like when Act 32 ETH is actually there. But like the, what I would say to that is like, it's easy to withdraw your 32 ETH and because yeah, it's yeah. always easy to create an Ethereum node, if the day actually comes when these cloud service providers are censoring and the day that becomes that the nation state is turning authoritarian, the ability to exit is always there. And that's because of the design philosophy of Ethereum. Yeah, I think this goes back to the thing we were talking about before about sort of real-time censorship resistance versus like cockroach or nuclear winter decentralization, where it's like, you know, we, we keep coming back to this thing where like the Solana implicit choice is availability in a real-time format. And this sort of idea that like as long as one copy of the ledger survives, we can get the rest of the thing spun up again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the place you kind of keep coming back to is like, that ability that even if the network is heavily censored for a two-day period of time, because it's easy for folks to spin it up in their in their home, it's like the recoverability part is more. It was where you seem to wait more as opposed to the real-time censorship resistance. That's interesting. Yeah, it's always funny when different uh, tribes talk because we use different words. Yeah. I don't see like Ethereum because of the vector of attack of AWS nodes ultimately creating censorship in that one moment of time. I don't see that as something that like could happen. I'd have to think about this more. But then like my critique, my response, yeah. my, my critique would be like, okay, so it's really nice that Solana is going for real-time censorship resistance, but maybe it should keep it ch its chain up more often. Oh, sure. Right. But like this is, so this is kind of the really interesting part because like if, a th if AWS got a court order tomorrow that said you need to block every single thing on your services talking to the Ethereum network, 40% of the stake would go offline, if not more. Right. And, and Ethereum as like a, a responsive system would yes. adapt relatively quickly. Totally. And then it probably would not fall into that trap again. Yeah, yeah, totally. Within a day or two, I imagine most right. of that would have been moved, especially because so much of it's run by Kraken and Binance and Coinbase folks who are like very professional operators on this stuff. But it's very interesting because like, we would sort of argue, I think, at the Solana Foundation that that is functionally the same thing as trying to push the bounds of technology and sometimes the network goes offline for, for you know, 12 hours, which is interesting. I don't think that's the same thing. So why not? <laughs> a a, like, a one-time hypothetical censorship event of Ethereum's nodes is not the same thing as what appears to be a systemic inability to keep up the chain. So so I want to actually like get into this a little bit because I think this is super interesting because the technical ability to exit to the L1, mm -hmm. right, or the technical ability to reconstruct the ledger and move things over and get things going again, that is functionally the argument of why the downtime on Solana, while it's not desirable and needs to be fixed, I'm not making any excuses for it, is not existential mm -hmm. because each individual validator and each individual participant of the network, they have a copy of the state. They know what the state is. They know the state's secure. They know their account exists in the state that it is. And that, that is very structurally similar of an argument to say that, like, you know, the, the layers on Ethereum, like, it's okay because you can exit to the L1. Even if there is a problem, we have a fallback solution. Uh, I just think it's very interesting, like, uh, you know, I'm not going to defend uptime and say that it's not a problem, but, like, Ethereum testnet has gone down many times, right? 
and and it is eventually there will be a problem with Ethereum proof of stake. And there will be periods of long unavailability, either while the network slashes itself down to resolving a fork, or if there's manual intervention required. This is a property of proof of stake networks, right? And so it's interesting to kind of look at these sort of two perspectives on what's valued at that point. Right. Yeah. And I think I'll invoke the other part of the conversation that we had where like, at yeah. some point, Solana, if it is in its maximally successful case, will be saturated. And why not just deploy another Solana on top of Solana, right? Totally. But then the choices of the layer one, the choices to be a quote unquote juice layer one, real time censorship resistance, whatever that design philosophy is, are then imparted upon layer two Solana, right? And so Ethereum, the layer one, just immediately concedes to the fact it will not be a juice layer one. It will be a slow decentralized chain. And what that does is that allows one thing, one very important thing to be not censored further up the stack, which is the layer two gets the decentralization, the layer three gets yeah. the decentralization. And so like, it's just, a, I guess, a, a matter of emphasis and values about how to construct a chain. Sure. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's super interesting too to look at like these different philosophies and have this conversation here. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, I always enjoy yeah. these things. Yeah. Um, so my last question before I go to this, I know we're, we're way over, is what do you think other ecosystems are doing well that the Ethereum community could learn from? And what can other ecosystems learn from the Ethereum community? Yeah. My answer to like what other ecosystems doing well that Ethereum could learn from is going to be not as good as the other answer, just because like I'm just not as familiar with, with, with other ecosystems. One of my biggest regrets in this last bull market is like being the get off my lawn grandpa, uh, don't build your chain in the way that's not right approach. You will pay the gas fees and you will like it stance. And so I apologize for that, uh, those previous transgressions in the bull market. <laughs> and I think so, so like maybe one thing is that the newer chains, the faster chains, the Solana, Solana type chains are doing well is like onboarding the people that Ethereum wish that we had onboarded in the bull market. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so like that, that was, uh, there's always like this gatekeeping in, in crypto tribes. Uh, and so like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be an Ethereum, you better walk and talk like an Ethereum and that's fundamentally unsustainable. And so Solana as like the newer chain with a newer generation is more resonant culturally, probably with like the more expansive world. And so Ethereum we intend to maximally succeed in the ways that we intend probably need to like do the whole compromising on on how we approach newer communities and stop being so like militant about values probably is what i'll say about yeah. that yeah i yeah i think that's i think that's fair cuz like the slow chain thesis is like a very credible thesis the other thing is is like you're not going to onboard the world with 3 dollar transaction fees right yeah or, or I think more importantly, more saliently, you're not going to onboard the world talking about like the the crypto values. I have been called by I can't remember. I think it was like one of the up only uh, community members that like David is just like ready to wrap people's knuckles if they like commit transgressions against crypto economic philosophy. And so like that one, that one hurt a little bit. Like I I remember that comment. Uh, and so like that that is something I'm trying to take to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what I would say that so the uh, the other community should learn about Ethereum, like like I said towards the beginning, like man, I really wish it, it's too much content to go back into the archive of like POV crypto and early Bankless. Like there were some like 
famous conversations in the 2018 to 2020 bear market. There was like uh, Austin, like Hazi, you know Hazi, right? Yeah. Uh, what crypto tribe would you put him in? Oh boy, using the modern definitions. Yeah, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, like like what, what what train do you would you think that he has alignment towards? I guess it's more of a philosophy. Hmm. What do you what would you say? Okay, so when I was growing up in crypto, yeah, he was a Bitcoiner. He was yeah, yeah, a yeah. Bitcoiner. Today, I would say he's an Ethereum. And like, yeah, he's not only it's a like philosophy thing. Yeah, it's yeah. a philosophy thing. Yeah. And there was just like this famous conversation between Ryan, my co-host and Hazu when Hazu was a Bitcoiner. And mm-hmm. Hazu talked about like Ethereum culture is downstream of Bitcoin culture. Ethereum people are waking up to the idea of block space as economically a dense transaction space. The idea of the native currency as money. Uh, and he was a Bitcoiner in this time. And like, the entire Ethereum community was like, but Hazu, you're so smart. Why are you a Bitcoiner? And eventually, like, we won him over, right? And there were, like, these yeah. big conversations that the entire industry was, would have about what is money? Why do you design a blockchain? What it, it, why do you do blocks, small blocks, right? And I wish that, like, the, the Solana community had the time to go back into the archive and find these really important formulative conversations that we had. And so, like, they could experience that for themselves. Because to me, it feels like, Solana has like skipped into the year of like 2020 to 2021. The Solana community has been formed in those years and they haven't like discovered like why we are the rest of the industry that came before it is the way that it is. And so like mm-hmm. then then they see like the, the toxic ETH maxis who are telling them that they need to pay our gas fees and enjoy it while they do. And they're and then naturally they just like say, well, fuck you. Like <laughs> I'm going to go onto my own chain that that treats me like I'm a real person that also has one cent transaction fees that are is clearly good UX. And I'm going to feel good about that because you guys are assholes. And like, very natural reaction. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. And also, there's a reason why we are the way that we are and have become the way that, that we've become. And so my ask to the, to the Solana community is like, it is worth going back into the archives and exploring these like very early conversations. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on Validated. Austin, this has been a great experience. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.